Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am super excited to have Dr. Michael Turner on our podcast again. He has been on our podcast a handful of times, and I have plans on having him on many more times. He is has a wealth of knowledge on many subjects um, regarding health and wellness. And today we're going to be talking about post-COVID and erectile dysfunctions. I did not know that COVID can cause erectile dysfunction problems. So um, Dr. Turner is going to be talking about that and going to be talking about treatment too. So without further ado, Dr. Turner, welcome to our show. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Truly very glad to be here. I'm in the company of greatness uh, amongst other guests. You know, we have gotten Dr. McCullough and John Stockton and other people. So, you know, glad to be here. This is a special opportunity. And always fun. Well, well, hey, don't be so humble yourself. I I hear uh, that you were interviewed for a recent movie coming out about COVID. Is that correct? That's true. That's true. Yeah, so I'll have you're, to let you're, you know you're, about you're, that. You're, <laughs> yeah, you're a big guest in itself. So, so thank you for being on, Dr. Turner's. Yes, glad to. Well, you know, I have entitled this uh, presentation – Post-COVID erectile dysfunction, don't let the pandemic get you down, right? So it's a cheeky little title there, but it's a true concept and, you know, concerning, of course, for men and their partners. And it's uh, estimated that people who are hospitalized for COVID in the aftermath of that, the incidence of new ED, erectile dysfunction, was up to about 64% in some of the studies that were done. So that's notable. We also know that COVID lowers testosterone levels on average. So they did a study, I just reviewed it this morning, where they took people who had PCR-confirmed and symptomatic COVID cases and followed their testosterone levels, and most all of them dipped down with a slow rise back over five or six months, but about 10 to 20% of the cohort didn't even rise to pre-COVID levels after that time. So yeah, definitely a concern. So is the treatment any different than um, than uh, regular erectile dysfunction? Yeah, absolutely. It is a bit different. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how I would break our conversation into COVID-specific treatments and then just general blood vessel health and general erectile uh, treatment. So on the COVID side, we first have to understand what's going on. And this centers around the spike protein and it centers around damage to the endothelium. Um, as you may know, the spike protein coats the uh, edges of the virus and is the mechanism by which the virus binds to the so-called ACE2 receptors on the inside of your blood vessels. That inner lining of your blood vessels is called the endothelium. So the spike protein uh, binds and damages actually the endothelium in that process. It provokes a strong immune reaction. Think of it like a splinter. When you have a splinter, you have an immune reaction, you have redness, swelling, um, the same thing happens there with the spike protein. So you have these micro splinters essentially scattered throughout your blood vessel system that attracts the immune system, that attracts inflammation, and that causes local tissue swelling and damage. We also know that that part of that process involves a drop in nitric oxide production in the endothelium. So as the endothelium is damaged, nitric oxide production drops off. And that's important because nitric oxide is responsible for dilating those small blood vessels. In fact, medications like Viagra work by promoting nitric oxide uh, activity. 
So we have a fall off in nitric oxide. We have damage to the endothelium. And we also have <clears throat> um, promotion of what we call platelet aggregation or hyperactivity of platelets, which basically means the blood becomes more into a pro-clotting state. So you have a propensity for blood clots in the midst of all that. So COVID needs to be largely understood as a vascular problem, the spike protein getting loose and causing those things I just mentioned. And this can happen in any blood vessel in the body, whether large or small, and smaller blood vessels, such as those feeding uh, male reproductive organs or female reproductive organs for that matter, or your brain um, can certainly be adversely affected and end up with lower levels of uh, blood flow and oxygenation. So that is the main problem. And then the secondary problem is hormonal, as I mentioned, a COVID infection often associated with at least a transient drop off in testosterone levels. You know, when you were explaining this, it makes complete sense now when you talk about the endothelium and clotting issues. And, um, you know, it's a well-known fact um, that COVID can cause um, cardiovascular issues with heart attacks and strokes. And, um, yes. you know, blood flow is a big issue when it comes to erectile dysfunction. So it's, in, in fact, even more of an issue. I, I had a, um, a good friend who's a urologist and, you know, when he treats erectile dysfunction, um, he also refers patients to cardiology because um, the, the vessels in the penis are actually the first ones to be affected before um, the heart muscle because they're smaller than the ones in the heart. And I think if I remember right, the numbers are three millimeters in the penis versus five millimeters in the heart, something like that. Um, but it's a good indicator of cardiovascular function, erectile dysfunction. So when it makes sense what you're explaining about COVID and how it works in the endothelial, the spike protein, how it works in the endothelial, um, endothelium, um, and how it can cause erectile dysfunction. That makes a lot of sense. Great explanation, Dr. Turner. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Glad to. Well, to your point about overall vascular health, it's very relevant. Um, as you mentioned, the connection between erectile dysfunction and problems elsewhere in the vascular system, that's very appropriate um, connection there between urology and cardiology. So we'll get to this uh, maybe right towards the end, but one of the ideas is to treat erectile dysfunction generally is to optimize vascular health generally, right? It's the same thing. It's just more accentuated and pronounced as regards to that problem. So we can talk about general principles of vascular health, which arguably, by the way, would be the single most important anti-aging concept or wellness concept, right? If I had to just drop one piece of knowledge off of the tree of anti-aging or wellness, you can only pick one thing. It would be optimize your vascular health. That's the one thing you have to do, okay? Because cardiovascular health is directly associated with heart attacks and strokes, first of all, and those are two of the top yep. three leading causes of death in the Western world, other than cancer. Besides that, very associated with dementia, okay, even Alzheimer's. Yeah. For example, my father passed away uh, last year of Alzheimer's in a care home. On the death certificate, it said cause of death, Alzheimer's. And then it says secondary to atherosclerotic disease. Yeah. Okay, atherosclerotic disease is just that word for hardening of the arteries or damage to the blood vessel system. So even the pathologists are now considering that Alzheimer's is maybe just a secondary effect of ongoing vascular insufficiency or damage to the brain. Pretty striking. And not to mention, if you don't get good blood flow anywhere in your body, the output of any given organ system is curtailed, right? So whether you're trying to 
run a 5K or keep up with your kids in the backyard or lift the wheelbarrow or anything, that's all dependent and presupposes an adequate amount of blood flow. And if you don't have that, you can't function well. So that's arguably the most important health and wellness concept of all. Yeah, that 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 is totally true. And you know, it makes sense with dementia and Alzheimer's that it's a blood flow issue. It just makes sense. I mean, our, our brain, I think, and maybe you can help me with this. Um, if yeah. I remember right from anatomy physiology, I believe that 20% of our blood is in our brain. I mean, our brain has a lot of vessels and blood flow. Um, so if it is impeded at all, it's going to cause a problem. Yeah, very much so. I don't remember the exact proportion, but as you're saying, absolutely a huge proportion. The blood flow, uh, the kidneys and the brain, if you look yep. at the total blood outflow, like per unit volume per time, right? Those are the predominant places that blood is sent uh, in the yep. body. So a, a good point. Yeah. Um, and this also ties into real, real quick to COVID and, yeah. and brain fog and COVID and certain kinds of neurologic problems that people develop, right? Especially long COVID. So if someone says, oh, my long COVID, my headaches, my brain fog, I can't concentrate, even my moods change, my sense of taste or smell, they're ringing in my ears. All of that is related to most directly inadequate blood flow to the brain, still from the microclotting and damage to the blood brain barrier that has occurred. So that's a primary impetus when I help long COVID patients is heal the blood brain barrier, reduce inflammation and oxidative stress in the brain. So, so let's go into that a little bit. How do we keep our um, endothelium? How do we keep our vessels healthy? Yeah. So first of all, as far as COVID goes, we'll talk about a few things. So we talked about how nasty the spike protein is. Let's talk about how to clear the spike protein out of your body, right? Is that possible? You see on the internet, spike protein detox formula, you know, 99.99 and sign up for this thing. Is that real? What is the deal, right? So it turns out, there are several substances that directly bind the spike protein, which is helpful because if it's bound, it's not uh, binding with and aggravating and damaging your endothelium. It is mm -hmm. going to be bound, neutralized, and then slowly cleared out by the body, right? So vitamin C is known to bind spike protein. Quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, if you guys have heard mm -hmm. of that, it's related to vitamin C. It's a so-called citrus bioflavonoid, also binds spike protein. NAC and acetylcysteine mm -hmm. also bind spike protein. Ivermectin binds spike protein, which is one of the many ways that it's helpful for COVID. Certain strains of CBD oil bind spike protein. And finally, I found this out not too long ago. There's an enzyme called natokinase, which comes from the soybean and has been used medicinally over in Japan for many, many years. It's pretty phenomenal as regards cardiovascular health because it does everything good for your cardiovascular system. Okay, It uh, improves cholesterol ratios. It thins your blood like aspirin. It directly reverses atherosclerosis, which they demonstrated in a study in China. They did uh, carotid ultrasounds and showed that natokinase actually reversed like 30% of the narrowing that had occurred in people's carotid arteries. Uh, so pretty phenomenal. But it also directly dissolves blood clots, and it directly dissolves the spike protein. So natokinase is crucial uh, as far as that goes. So those are, those are options for clearing the body of spike protein. That's the first thing I would do. And then I would say secondarily, we want to heal that endothelium, right? We want to heal that endothelium um, and we want to thin the blood a bit because as I mentioned, that spike protein triggers a so-called hyperactive state of the platelets. Well, we want a blood thinning or antiplatelet agent on board and we want the endothelium to be healed. And that's where we typically start aspirin, 
Again, natokinase is a blood thinner. And then there's a supplement called EGCG. Have you heard of EGCG? I have, but educate me. Yeah, so pretty interesting. So it comes from green tea, and it's the reason that green tea is healthy, essentially. When they studied, you know, certain uh, cultures in the Far East drink a lot of green tea associated with longevity and wellness. And when they study the green tea to understand what's most medicinally active, it turns out is this molecule, EGCG, stands for epigallocatechin gallate, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's essentially a healthy substance in green tea. What's fascinating about it is it has strong anti-cancer properties, for example. Um, it promotes DNA repair and has some other anti-cancer properties. But as far as we're concerned, it interferes with the spike protein's ability to bind and damage the endothelium. So that's also nice. So that's, that's my second level there, um, trying to heal up the endothelium. And uh, I'll just go on here for a second, and then yeah. we, can, we can come back to that. My, the third concept and final, as far as COVID specifically goes, would be trying to promote nitric oxide release, right? So nitric oxide is that key molecule that signals the endothelium in your blood vessels to relax. This is the way the Viagra works. It promotes nitric oxide duration uh, of benefit. And so we want to look at ways to promote nitric oxide. We know that a, um, a COVID infection damages local nitric oxide release because that's mediated by the endothelium. So if your endothelium is damaged, it's not releasing as much nitric oxide and the whole signaling cascade for relaxation of the blood vessels is not happening. So we want to boost up nitric oxide production and there are some ways to do that that we can talk about. All right. Um, that, there, there's a lot there. Uh, and one of the things that I love about uh, having you on and, and just having a podcast and guests like yourself on is that I learned so much. So I really appreciate your wealth of knowledge. So thank you for educating us. Oh, sure. Glad to do it. You know, I was a school teacher before I went to medical school. Um, I had wanted oh, to go to medical school right. all along, but I was, yeah, I was a full-time classroom school teacher for two years, fifth grade and then seventh and eighth grade science. So I greatly enjoy it. I'm always thinking in educational terms and I am always just imagining how to convey concepts more precisely, uh, more persuasively, more insightfully uh, to inspire my patients. This is fun. Well, Thank you, Sean. and I think in medicine, we need to be better about that as healthcare professionals. And if I remember right, doctor in Greek means teacher. Is that correct? Do you remember that? You're right. Correct. Yes, you're right. Greek or Latin, one of those. Yeah, yes, like you're right. That's the root so, where it comes from. Yes. Right. So let's keep going. Let's keep going on treatment of post COVID erectile dysfunction. Sure. So we'll we'll pick up with the theme of nitric oxide, and then we'll continue forward a little bit. And this will just talk about general principles now of erectile dysfunction, not specific to COVID, but generally having a healthy vascular system. All right. So. COVID or otherwise, we want to promote nitric oxide production. From a dietary viewpoint, there are ways to do that. For example, spinach and beets, okay? Or if you want to do an internet search, look up nitrates, all right? Food sources of nitrates. Those are essentially precursors to nitric oxide, which is this important signaling molecule in the endothelium, signaling the blood vessels to relax. So if you perk up levels of nitric oxide just through uh, your diet, you're going to have uh, higher levels and, and better vascular function, again, anywhere in your body. S there are certain supplements that will directly boost nitric oxide levels. My favorite is arginine and citrulline, mm -hmm. okay? And arginine is an amino acid. Citrulline functions similarly. They both 
boost nitric oxide production, citrulline has, I think, a more potent effect and probably a longer half-life and duration. So oftentimes they're combined. This is often used in a pre-workout. So most quality pre-workouts include arginine and citrulline, if you read the ingredients, with good reason, because they have a huge boost in nitric oxide production. And that's advantageous for any kind of workout, right? Both performance and recovery. Parenthesis, also advantageous for erectile dysfunction. Parenthesis, also advantageous if you have had COVID and you're struggling with chest pains or something like that, right? I just, for example, I had a young man in his 20s who'd been having these persistent chest pains from COVID. He called me from out of state, uh, had gone to the ER, had gone to cardiology. Everything was looking fine, but he noted that there were these sudden sharp pains that would come on and it was mortifying for him. You know, he'd feel like he was going to die and something was wrong with his heart. And I explained microclots, I explained endothelial dysfunction. I, I talked to him about natokinase, aspirin, all the stuff we mentioned. And then I said, by the way, let's get you on this arginine powder. I'm going to send you this link to Amazon, buy this stuff, right? Next time I see him in fall, he goes, that arginine is something else, doc. He goes, can I take it more often? He goes, I take that and I feel good for about a solid five hours and no chest pains at all. And then I can feel it kind of wearing off. He goes, can I get on this like two, three times a day? I said, sure. You know, that's fine. So um, can be dramatic. Um, so supplements, so, so arginine, you, citrulline. What we're talking about, arginine. Yeah. Can you tell us about the dose? What kind of dose do you recommend usually? Yeah, we're talking like a four or five gram dose. That's what I was so wondering. Imagine so big, like a, a big nice dose. Yeah, yes, exactly. Like a nice rounded teaspoon, something like that, yeah. four to five grams. Yeah, absolutely. Which to is, is to your point, Sean, is good to be aware of because there are a lot of supplement gimmicks and marketing, right? Built around having a quality ingredient, but giving you a small amount of it in the bottle. Right. So it'll say, you know, in pre-workout and improves vascularity. And this thing has arginine in it. And it's 200 milligrams or something like that. Right. So <laughs> we have to understand what's the scientifically defined minimally effective dose, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, that's about what that dose is. Um, similarly, I talked about beets. You can buy beetroot powder. OK, you can buy beetroot powder, potent source of organic nitrates, potent in its vasodilatory effects. I'll give you an example. Did you know that a lot of Olympic athletes dope legally with beetroot juice? Are you familiar with this idea? I do because I know I follow some cycling podcasts and um, yep. they, you know, cyclists will drink, will drink beet juice. So when you, you were talking about beets for erectile dysfunction, I'm thinking, oh, makes sense. Vasodilatory increases nitric oxide. Makes total sense. Oh, yeah. I've Absolutely. Yeah. They've done studies where your VO2 max will go up, you know, your power output will go up. If you're a runner, you know, you'll take a couple seconds off your 800 meter time. This has all been done just with a shot of beetroot juice just prior to the workout. Or in some cases, you know, one or two weeks of consistent use of beetroot juice to build up the nitrate levels in your body. Yeah, that's all been well proven. I remember I read about this several years ago. Uh, there were articles about Olympic athletes drinking beetroot juice and this and that. And so I kind of went off down that rabbit trail. Pretty fascinating. Uh, but you can buy beetroot powder as well if you're not much a fan of the juice and just mix that in a smoothie. I just had a smoothie this morning, threw a teaspoon of beetroot powder right in there. <laughs> My anecdote about that, I had a gentleman I was working with in California, and he's basically a semi-professional climber and teaches indoor climbing at this gym. And he was struggling a little bit with like stamina during his workouts and recovery and things. I talked to him about beetroot juice, nitric oxide, all of that. 
And he comes back. He's like, Doc, I can't believe this beetroot powder. This stuff's amazing. He says, there's this climb I've been trying to do. And every time I get to this point of the climb, it's about 80% through his climb. He goes, I just, I can't reach anymore. I lock up. I fail. I have tried 15 times and failed 15 times at the same point in this climb. He goes, I took my beetroot powder. The first time I went up, I finished the climb. And he was shocked. And so he did it again. And same thing. And so this guy will not go to the gym without his beetroot powder. And he's telling everybody at the climbing gym about it. So kind of striking. Um, so uh, on the last part, so we're trying to stimulate nitric oxide production from a dietary viewpoint. We've got spinach, we've got beets, we've got beetroot powder. We got supplements like arginine and citrulline. The final more aggressive side then would be medication. So there are certain medications that we can give that will stimulate nitric oxide production. There are <clears throat> long acting nitrates, okay, from a synthetic pharmaceutical viewpoint, which you'd know about, Sean, typically used in cardiovascular medicine. So the typical reason would be someone's recurrent chest pains or someone's high blood pressure. We want to give them a so-called long-acting nitrate that will stimulate this pathway and resolve those issues. So that is an option. And then there are that indirectly promote nitric oxide uh, duration and action in the endothelium. So that's the the final level for nitric oxide. So when you're talking about nitrates, are you talking about like isosorbide dinitrate that we use for cardiovascular function? Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. And, and the, the, the last ones you're talking about are probably more like the, um, um, the, the Viagra, the Tadalafil, things like that. Correct. Yeah. The phosphodiesterase inhibitors. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. So they, they can be quite helpful, uh, obviously for ED or in the case of this gentleman with chest pain, even, um, this young man, I had him on arginine and citrulline. And then the next thing I recommended was to actually start to Dalafil, which back to your carryover between cardiology and, uh, erectile function, as you know, some of your listeners may not know, but Viagra was originally developed as a blood pressure and cardiac med, if I'm not mistaken, right. to the best of my understanding, right? Yep. And the guys came back and like, yeah, it's helping with my blood pressure, doc, but guess what? I've got an erection that won't quit. And <laughs> <laughs> yep. right somewhere a light bulb went off and they said, uh, let's pivot and repurpose this thing as an ED drug, which is what they did, but it grew out of cardiovascular research and, and absolutely does have benefits still for, for example, blood pressure phenomenon. Well, and, and just a, tan, a tangent on that that I'd really like to hit on as a pharmacist and some things that are in the news right now is that yeah. many drugs are that, – that's how most things are discovered serendipitously. And, and we don't realize those things happen until they take the drug. And then all of a sudden, usually as a doctor, a lot of times you'll, just, you'll say, wow, well, we know that it's prescribed for this normally or – indicated for this or FDA approved for this, but we know it also mm -hmm. works for this. So you'll start prescribing it off label. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of controversy now, right now about the FDA trying to stop prescribing off label. And Viagra is a great example. Now it never really made it on the market as a blood pressure drug first, but there are many drugs that have done that things like that. And we find out they work for other things. So you as a doctor, prescribe them appropriately, although it's off-label. So just a reminder that just because something is has been used for XYZ for years and labeled 
FDA approved for that doesn't mean it doesn't work for something else. I know I'm off on a tangent, but that's a, a big a big subject going on right now. It's a great point, Sean. I'm glad you mentioned it. Yes. The whole idea of something being off-labeled and therefore insinuating that it's poor medical usage or something is a false line of argumentation and very detrimental to the patient. So, for example, let's just ask the question, how does something get FDA approved anyway? And the answer is there's a big, long process, takes many years if it's done well and correctly, right? And takes millions of dollars. And so typically, something's only going to get through that process when it has some big donor bankrolling it, aka a pharmaceutical company. So pharmaceutical company rolls out their product and says, um, this wonder drug, you know, lowers your blood pressure. And so it's FDA approved to lower blood pressure. Well, now it's on the market and we start studying it. And let's say some university, some reputable university, you know, uh, University of Washington does a research study and says, hey, by the way, we see that this drug, besides lowering blood pressure, is great at improving blood flow to the brain. And so all right. of our patients with brain fog and cognitive function, we, when you give this we give them this med, their brain function perks up a lot. And here's the documented stats and here's the research paper. So voila, it's looking good for brain function. And then I, 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 as a doctor, read that paper. I say, let me apply this to my patients with brain problems. Oh, wait, that would be off label because it's supposed to be a blood vessel medication for you know hypertension. Well, it's got more uses than that, right? So the FDA approval does not keep up with the scientific investigation and validity of things. And it's not like University of Washington is going to go back and fund hundreds of millions of dollars to go back to the FDA, right? To get a new label slapped on it, that it does something for the brain. That would be, you know, ludicrous. So knowledge just evolves and it's up to healthcare providers to stay up with that and bring their best to the patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. A great point. Well, let's talk about some general principles then of uh, vascular health which would affect uh, the rectile function in particular, since those are small, delicate vessels. So I want to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which was the nickname, as we learned these in medical school, the four horsemen of the apocalypse for vascular health. So this would be high blood pressure, right? Mm -hmm. We don't, you can imagine your blood vessels are delicate. There's a long system of them. We don't want a high pressurized environment, right? We've got delicate lining in the interior of these blood vessels. In fact, that endothelium is so delicate, it's one cell thick. That's it. Endothelium is one cell thick. So we don't want a high pressure phenomenon. And that's why primary cares check blood pressure, et cetera. So one of the four horsemen is keeping your blood pressure uh, in check. The other one would be blood sugar. We do not want elevated levels of blood sugar, aka prediabetes or diabetes. Why not? Because blood sugar chemically reacts with things nearby in the bloodstream, including your red blood cells, including the walls of the endothelium, including other random molecules that are you know, floating around. That's called glycosylation, and that's actually considered a sign of aging because when things become glycosylated, they stop functioning. It's a chemical reaction. So now we have this glucose molecule bound and hanging off the side of something else, and it's not doing its job, essentially. So we want low blood sugar levels in order to have vascular health, and that's why you, you know people should know what their fasting blood sugar is. If they want to be aggressive, know what their fasting insulin levels are, that kind of thing. That's why doctors yes. measure this stuff like hemoglobin A1C, et cetera. Okay, third up, it would be smoking, fairly obvious, but we want to avoid smoking, extremely toxic to the vascular system. And then the fourth horseman of the apocalypse uh, was cholesterol, specifically LDL. And so, you know, initially there was a lot of emphasis on total cholesterol, and then we realized, well, HDL is a little different from LDL, and HDL is actually healthy, so LDL is, you know, what we got to focus on more. And there's been a little controversy over that. I will, I will say, granted, over the last few years, you know, how low does the LDL need to go? Is it really... Is cholesterol really a problem? Can I just have, be on the carnivore diet and be all right? 
and all that. And I don't want to enter heavy into that, but uh, let's just say traditionally a lot of strong reason to understand that as part of not a good process for the vascular system in the long run. <clears throat> so those are four horsemen of the apocalypse. We want to minimize those. The fifth one, which was more of a novel research concept, came about probably after I left med school, but I was just learning about it, was inflammation. So the idea of chronic inflammation as being damaging to the blood vessels on par with the four things I mentioned. So you can check labs like a CRP or an ESR, if your listeners have heard of that, checking for signs of inflammation. In fact, there's even something called high sensitivity CRP, which is used by the cardiologists. And that has sort of a, a, a zoom in on the lower values of CRP because even lower values are potentially a cardiovascular risk. So we minimize those risk factors. Um, the other couple principles of exercise or rather vascular health would be exercise, most notably. I mean, we know that exercise is good, but as far as the vascular system, fantastic. Because when you're exercising, you are training your blood vessels to dilate so they can provide more blood flow. You're training them to dilate also so they can dissipate heat and waste products. So every time that you break a sweat, you are training your blood vessels to relax and you know, your whole vascular system remodels, just like the muscles remodel, the actual cardiovascular system remodels. And the more it's used to dilating, the more it's used to having higher circulating levels of nitric oxide, and the whole system is just sort of entrained, essentially. So consistent cardiovascular exercise does wonders for your vascular health. And the last thing I'll mention is heat stress, okay? So think about the example of a sauna. If you go sit in a, in a sauna, what's interesting, and you can comment more on this, Sean, if, if you're up on it, I've done a bit of reading, not exhaustive, but heat stress is very good for the cardiovascular system. Um, and they've done studies where they'll have people in a sauna and look at you know how it affects their blood pressure, how it affects their heart rate, and all of this. And it's basically a form of cardio exercise. You know, it's like on par to doing you know thirty minutes of cardio in zone four or something like that is you know twenty minutes in a sauna at you know one hundred eighty five degrees or whatever. There's, there's equivalence there. So it's sort of a cardio in a sweat box, essentially. But that idea of training your body to dissipate heat also entrains and facilitates uh, vascular function. So I've got a question um, for you. Yeah. What about, and I, and I, 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 I like saunas. I like hot tubs. Um, I don't like mm -hmm. ice baths. Tell me about ice mm. baths. That's kind of the new craze. Um, cold water therapy. Tell us about that. Does that does that have anything to do with endothelial function? Have you have you read any papers about that? I'm not familiar with it as regards endothelial function. I'm familiar with it as regards two things. So one would be just reducing inflammation after a hard workout. Again, if you can imagine a baseball pitcher sitting with a bag of ice on his shoulder when in the dugout, okay, or Michael Jordan sitting on the bench with his knees getting iced up. At the, after the fourth quarter, okay? So, or the guy's going back in the locker room and getting in the dunk tanks, et cetera. So right after a workout, absolutely notable for reducing inflammation, which will then hasten your workout recovery cycle. Nowadays, there are new and improved sort of next generation things like these cryo chambers that people, athletes will go into where the, it's deep freezing temperatures briefly for 15, 20 seconds, et cetera. So that quells the acute inflammatory response. <clears throat> The other thing that I've noted about the cold water therapy is its uh, effects on the vagal nerve. So it stimulates vagal nerve output, and that's a calming influence. The vagal, vagus nerve is responsible for mediating your so-called parasympathetic nervous system. That's the side that is calming as opposed to the fight or flight side. 
So the vagus nerve is the parasympathetic side, and that can be stimulated by cold, for example. So in that sense, you know, helps with heart rate, blood pressure, even anxiety, um, that kind of thing. That's where I'm most familiar with them. All right. All right. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, yeah. So it makes sense that, you know, heat therapy is going to stimulate, um, you know, our vascularity. It's going to make us vasodilate. Well, probably vasoconstrict after we get too hot. No, vasodilate to try to get rid of extra heat, right? Right. And then when we get out of the out of there, our our vessels are gonna gonna constrict to try to cool to try to keep us hot to, to warm us up again. So it, it, it's kind of like a workout. You know, you're 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 stressing your mm. um your vascular system to to constrict and dilate. So yeah that's a great Great, great analogy. I, I love that. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Yeah. So what, what else? Where else do we go on this? Uh, well, last thing I would say as regards COVID erectile function and also generally is a guy should know his testosterone level. Um, that plays into it. So we've been talking about vascularity, but a complete different category would be hormonal influences. Right? So there are direct hormonal influences of erectile function. Another way of saying that is your vascular, your vascular system could be in perfect shape, but if you have low hormonal input, you will struggle with ED yeah. as well. And that's basically knowing your testosterone level, especially if you've had COVID, because as mentioned, that causes a transitory decrease, at least persisting several months in most people. So that's important. Besides that, there are some supplements just generally that are proven to support erectile function, things like uh, ginseng and something called acetyl L-carnitine. That's really interesting. Um, I remember I read a study, it was over in Italy, they used acetyl L-carnitine and another form of carnitine in older men who were fatigued and had ED, and they compared the, the carnitine supplementation with straightforward testosterone repletion, okay, TRT. And basically both groups did equally well. Okay. Both guys came back saying, oh, my energy's up and my erectile function's up. I feel great. So it was considered uh, as equivalent to TRT. Pretty fascinating. So those are two so, supplements to consider. I, I would I would like your opinion on this. Um, yeah. Um, basically what I tell patients or, or tell men in general that if if you're not waking up with an erection in the morning, then mm-hmm. your testosterone might be suboptimal or, you know, you yep. could have some other issues going on. I mean, are you still, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, very true, Sean. When I, when I'm talking with patients, I explain it in terms of nighttime hormonal cycles. So your testosterone level peaks first thing in the morning and the whole system gets underway at night. So you are going to have your highest testosterone level, which would corroborate with an erection, you know, feeling energetic, feeling frisky in the bedroom, all of that would be expected in the first few hours of the morning. If you don't have any of that, it's a sign that your whole cycle is not ramped up probably to where it should be. And one of the biggest inhibitors of that is, of course, poor sleep. So some guys don't make this connection, right? So if you're staying up late and you got terrible sleep or your dog, you know, you're getting up to use the bathroom several times a night or your dog's in and out of your bed, right? Or you have terrible sleep apnea and your CPAP's not working for you or you stopped using it, whatever. If you're having choppy sleep, your hormonal output the next morning is going to drop way off, way off. And th- I, the way I just try to describe it, it's almost like a, like a wind-up clock. Imagine this wind-up clock, right? Some really intricate little clock. That's your hormonal system. It's got to wind up at night, but it needs a prolonged, sustained period of time to wind up and then release for you the next day, right? And if you kind of partially wind it with a little bit of deep sleep and then up, you're, you know, you're up, 
you're disturbed again. You go to bed a little bit, uh, kind of kind of starts to wind up. Now you're popped up again using the restroom, right? Every time you pop up, it never gets to fully cycle. And it's not only testosterone, but growth hormone. Okay, growth yeah. hormone is released only during the deepest stages of sleep. That's it. If you never get to the deepest stages of sleep, you never get any appreciable growth hormone release. Why do we care about that? Growth hormone is the most powerful fat-burning molecule that we know of. Okay, it, it sends direct chemical signals to your body to burn fat. Oh, besides that, it builds muscle and it strengthens connective tissue. Oh, wait, there's more. <laughs> um, it's good for your brain. Uh, brain. It's good for your skin, yeah. your hair, your nails. Absolutely. It's got neuroprotective uh, and helpful effects on the brain. So uh, keeping your growth hormone levels up is a phenomenal wellness idea as well. Awesome. As always, I, I, I love your knowledge and, and, and you're so eloquent how, how you share it and your analogies. You can definitely tell that you, you love teaching. So it's no surprise that you used to be a teacher. So as we wind this podcast up, um, what are, what are some, what are the parting words you would like to talk about when it comes to post-COVID erectile dysfunction? Yeah, parting words. I, I, I like to keep things simple and actionable for people. So I would just say three things. So number one, take some measure to clear the spike protein out of your body, such as one or more of the supplements I mentioned earlier. Number two, be doing some form of cardiovascular exercise to start to train your vascular system. And number three, take some basic supplement to boost nitric oxide production. Could be beetroot powder or arginine citrulline powder. For example, just get in a habit of having a little smoothie, taking one scoop, throwing it in there, drinking it down. It takes 10 seconds, right? I mean, how hard is that? You just got to make it a habit um, and you will notice a benefit. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I got to, I had to ask you the dose of L-arginine because a lot of times, you know, L-arginine comes in like a 500 milligram capsule and patients will yeah. say that it didn't do a lot for them. They took one a day, but you know, to do five grams, you have to take 10 tablets a day. Um, so it might be better off mm -hmm. if you don't want to do that, you might be better off getting a powder where you can do a scoop in a smoothie or mix it in water or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. I've got my favorite brand that I've been recommending off of Amazon. I'm, I'm welcome to any better brand that I would come across, but this is a great brand. You take basically one teaspoon of that. It's four or five grams. Works really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So Dr. Turner, I, I noticed you changed your website. It looks like. A little uh, bit. Did, you? did I? Okay. Uh, we've been making some updates. <laughs> we've been yeah. So tell us, what's the best way to, is this the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, you know, that, that is an awesome way. Thank you for asking, Sean. So you should notice in the upper right-hand corner, there's a, point, a little gray box that says appointments, right? Um, oh, yeah. yeah scroll to the yep. top for me. Yep. Okay. That gray box on the upper right-hand corner says appointments. Exactly. Shazam. So you can click on that. The beauty of that is it opens up my calendar. You can self-schedule. I have so-called meet and greet sessions. They're 20 minutes long and, you know, we get you on and we talk about uh, what your problem is and whether I can conceivably help you. So that's really easy, and you can self-schedule that off my website. The other thing I would direct people to, if you don't mind, Sean, typing in a URL, which is yes. Dr. Turner, D.R. Turner. So we're we going to a different website? Yes. Yep. I'm going to take you to one other okay. website here. What are we going? Dr. Turner? Yeah, D.R. Turner. Okay. So this, this website right here is michaelturnermd.com, and... Uh, 
put a lot of effort into it. We're, we're always improving it, but that's my main website. But I want to show one other ones because this would be of interest to your podcast listeners, I think, in particular. And that is drturner.substack.com. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, it's my Substack. So on Substack, as some of your listeners may know or discover, you can publish articles. So it's essentially a way, like a blogging platform, but it's multimedia as well. You can put voice and video files in there. And also I have my podcast episodes linked to that. So for example, many of the former episodes that we've done, uh, Sean, you've kindly allowed me to share with my audience. And so I post them on Substack. So if someone doesn't necessarily need to see me acutely for an appointment, right, but they're interested in keeping in touch and learning and hearing more when I'm on a, as a guest on podcast or when I write an article or something like that, that going to the Substack is the best option. Exactly. It looks like that. drturner.substack.com, health and wellness with Dr. Turner. You can type your email and click and become a subscriber, or you can just click uh, quickly on the bottom if it says no thanks, and you can just see a profile in the overview. Go ahead and click there. Unsubscribe or no thanks? Uh, no. Click no thanks for a second. Uh-huh. And then it takes you in and shows you an overview of the different podcasts and different articles that I've written. So that's a way that uh, my educational side gets expressed and people tend to <laughs> like that as well. You can see, I just wrote an article called power supplement fish oil. I talked all about omega three fatty acids, why they're healthy. You can see right underneath that, how to increase testosterone naturally. Um, that's a podcast you and I did a while back. So we've got that's these right, all in here yeah. for education and uplift. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Substack mm-hmm. seems to be kind of a, um, a growing phenomenon. I, I wasn't really familiar with it until I interviewed Dr. Mm-hmm. McCullough. So yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a cool way to get out information. So, so, all right. Well, Dr. Turner, thank you so much for being on. Always, always a pleasure, always a wealth of knowledge. I appreciate it. We'll have to definitely think about the next subject that we're going to talk about when we're on again. Okay. That'll be fun. Yes, Sean. I had a great time. Let me know when you're back in town and I wish you all the best with the podcast. It's exciting to see how how it's going for you. This is great. All right. You you definitely helped us realize our goal, which is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. So thank you so much, Dr. Turner. Okay. You're welcome. Take care. Yeah. And listeners and viewers, thank you so much for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday morning or Monday, 1230 to 1.30, our regular scheduled podcast, uh, Pacific Standard Time. We will have Ronnie Markle on our show, and she is going to be talking about fitness and nutrition. Uh, we've had her on before, and I'm excited to have her back on. So thank you, listeners and viewers, to tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. Thank you.